three of us. So it's nice, but, it, but it's in two minutes you realize this is not the session that you signed up for. Uh, feel really, I will confess that yesterday I was session splitting because I couldn't decide on just one, so I was half, half and half. Uh, and so if you're one of those that's trying to take in all the sessions and running five minutes at each, I am not offended. Feel free to head out at any time. Uh, I forgot yesterday, I, I got to speak here at 8 in the morning, also yesterday. Uh, that was on non-communicable diseases, and afterwards it reminded me I was supposed to have introduced myself at the beginning. Uh, so I'm Catherine. Uh, I'm a professor at George Mason University, which is just outside Washington, D.C. And my qualifications for talking about research are that I'm a researcher. Uh, so I've published about 60 papers in the past five years. More than half of them were with student co-authors. So I really have a passion for helping people to become researchers. I've written a research methods textbook and a global health textbook that's sort of research focused. Uh, and so that's really what I spend my time doing. Uh, so what do I think about research? I think it's important. And presumably you pretty much agree on that or you wouldn't be here at 8 a.m. on a Saturday. Uh, I think that research is something everybody can do. And I may be the only one who says that research is enjoyable. Uh, but hopefully I will convince some of you that that is, in fact, the case. So the, the more boring title for this talk is Successful Health Research Goals and Methods for Low-Resource Settings. And I thought I would start with just a few examples of some of the projects I've been involved with. And some of them have their origins at this very conference. So uh, I think it was about nine years ago that I attended for the first time. And I met some people from HCJB, who they've got a booth, if you want to talk to them. They work all over the world, but they started in Ecuador. So when I was here, I met some of the community development people, and they do these community water and sanitation projects. And they said they would like to do some research and look at whether those projects were successful in reducing childhood illnesses. And so I was teaching at Calvin College at the time. I brought a bunch of students down. We partnered with some local students. And we did surveys in, I think, 20 communities uh, looking at under five child health. We actually found an answer that we did not expect to find, which was we compared kids in 10 communities that had clean water projects and 10 communities that were on the wait list to get clean water. And we discovered that the kids in the clean water communities were sicker, had more diarrhea, and more parasites. Good thing we did the study. Uh, what we discovered was that it appeared that the message of water conservation and sustainability had been so thoroughly received that people stopped washing their hands. You know, don't waste a drop of water. Uh, and so the HEJB developed some community health workshops and went back to all of the communities they work with and talked about hygiene and nutrition and child care. And so now all of the kids are healthier than they were before the research project. So the implication was, again, we needed some community health education. And to some extent, this was an example of program evaluation research. Here's a project we're doing. These are the goals for that project. Are we achieving those goals? Uh, another example is with a group called Partner for Surgery that's affiliated with the Presbyterian Church, and this is located in Guatemala. And this is a group that's a, a triage organization. So we know many of you might be surgeons. We know surgeons love to go to low-income countries for a couple of weeks and do like 70 operations a day. 
but those surgeons don't have time to go find people on the street. Hey, you want some surgery? It doesn't work that way. So Partner for Surgery is a triage group that goes to rural areas, identifies surgical candidates, and links them to groups like uh, that do, say, surgery for cleft lip, cleft palate. And what they discovered was that more than half of the people who they arranged to have free surgery didn't show up. And so the question that we wanted to ask was, why are people not showing up for these free scheduled surgeries? So we did a research project. We looked at data for about 900 of these surgical candidates with a supplemental questionnaire. And we found two things were going on. One was that it was the longer we had to wait. Sorry, the sound guy is letting me know I forgot to tether myself. Uh, (laughs) Remind me if I'm walking off the stage. Yesterday, I... I nearly lost uh, everything up here because I forgot that I was tethered when I wandered. Uh, so the, the answer is this was, first of all, the longer people had to wait from when they were scheduled for the surgery to when the surgery was, the less likely to show up. So if you scheduled surgery for within, like, two weeks, they were there, 95%. You wait three months, like, nobody showed up because they had time to reconsider and think, you know, this is really not that good a, a deal. I just want to stay home. Uh, so the implications was, let's have shorter wait times. Don't put something on the calendar till you can get them in within a couple of weeks. And then also, the other thing was that people who didn't know anyone who had ever had surgery were much less likely to show up. So we started inviting alumni of this program to go meet their neighbors and say, yeah, I had surgery. It was great. I'm healthier now. It's not scary. So again, we were able to do some program evaluation research that helped this Christian organization to do its job better. Another example, I work in Sierra Leone at a place called Mercy Hospital. It's affiliated with United Methodist Church. And here, this is a relatively uh, new project. We wanted to look at whether non-communicable diseases were becoming a problem in the community that we serve. This was in the city of Bo. It's Sierra Leone's second largest city. And so we did a survey of 4,000 adult outpatients and we found that more than a quarter of them had hypertension that was not being treated. So we found that hypertension is very common, and now what we're trying to look at is how can we add NCD management to the services offered by the hospital, which traditionally is focused on maternal and child health. So we're trying to look at how to adapt to changing health situations. So that's kind of a needs assessment research. And another example, uh, Cure International also here uh, today, Uh, I spent part of my summer at Bait Care Hospital in Blantyre, Malawi, and we are just getting started on this project. We haven't really analyzed the data yet. What we're looking at here is how common are traumatic injuries and what resources in the whole country are available for treating them. So the preliminary data, not a surprise. There are a lot of injuries and not many surgical resources. And so the next step is, first of all, analyzing the data, writing it up, but also looking at what can we do to increase access to surgical resources. So that's sort of a needs assessment research kind of project. A final example here is, again, with HCJB. They've got a hospital out sort of toward the Amazon area. And this was a study where we were looking at what are the major infectious causes of febrile illness that are not malarial. And the answer after collecting data from thousands of patients was not what we thought. We thought we'd be seeing a lot of dengue fever, which is viral, not much you can do for it. Instead, what we found was that there was a lot of leptospirosis, which is bacterial. 
And so where before, if patients had a non-malarial fever, we just sent them home. After this project, now it's, okay, treat with antibiotics. It's probably lepto and not dengue. So that is uh, sort of research for clinical practice, even though it's with a Christian service organization. So this sort of gives an idea of the major health research goals that you might want to consider if you are working with a health service organization. We can look at needs assessment. What are the needs of the community that we're serving? What needs are not currently being addressed? We can look at program evaluation. Are we achieving our stated goals? What can we do better? And we can look at clinical practice, which includes uh, ways to improve the way we prevent or diagnose or treat health problems in the communities that we serve. I'd also like to point out that there are some values that we bring to to research. And to some extent, these are just public health research values, though they apply to any uh, clinical research as well. So three of the big ones, I think. First of all, we like that research is community-based. So I heard the phrase mosquito researcher recently, which is that scientists fly in, suck people's blood out, and then fly home. Uh, and we don't want to be mosquito researchers. Uh, we want to collaborate with service organizations that have a long-term commitment to the community. We don't do needs assessment and program evaluation and keep that to ourselves secretly. We, we want to do it for a purpose. Second value is that we want to be action-oriented or practice-oriented. We want to answer questions that allow those community-based organizations to better serve their communities. And the third one is one that maybe seems like it shouldn't have to be stated, but it does. We want to be people-focused. It's really easy to start caring more about the data than the people. So I'm an epidemiologist. I I confess uh, that that's the case. And a lot of epidemiologists, we want a perfect data set or something close to it. And so it's easy to start focusing more on getting those bubble forms filled in properly than paying attention to the person sitting right across from you answering your questions. So we want to keep that people focus front and center. So this seminar will be more meaningful to you if you have a particular project in mind that you might want to do. So I'd like you to take a moment and think about what is one example of a needs assessment, program evaluation, or clinical practice research question that you would like to explore in the community you serve or the community that you feel called to serve. And if you don't have a research question, you may borrow one from a neighbor. So let's take like two minutes Think of a question. If you don't have one, steal one. And yes, you can talk.
right, so it sounds like most of us either have an idea or have borrowed one. So next set of questions will relate to that particular project for you. So one of the first things that you have to decide is whether you want to do informal research or formal research. And the main difference between those is that formal sounds scarier. Uh, so informal research, uh, the goal here is to answer a question and use it to improve the services that your organization offers. And for a lot of people, that's something that is part of your job description, doing that monitoring and evaluation, program effectiveness. You've got to write those end-of-year reports or let the donors know what you achieved. So that's p potentially informal research. Formal research, you answer that question and use it, but then the goal is to share that answer with the world. And so some kinds of projects, maybe you feel that there isn't a generalizable message, but often there is. So with some of the examples that I started with, those were questions for a particular organization, but I ended up publishing with my collaborators all of those studies because we felt there was a generalizable result that might help other organizations also serve their communities better. If you're doing informal research, the output may be some sort of internal report for use within your organization where for formal research, there may be an external goal like a journal article or a conference presentation. And one thing to be aware of with ethics approval, most of you would know that formal research does require formal approval before you collect data. What I would suggest is even though ethics approval might not necessarily be required for informal research, get it anyway. There is no harm to come from asking people in the community, people with expertise in ethics, to look at your protocol and let you know if they've got any concerns. And there are a lot of benefits to come from getting that input. So we don't want to do any harm. We do want to do our jobs the best we can. And the review process is a way of helping you as a researcher to do your best work. So that's not something I would be consider to be a difference there. Second key decision is to look at the data source. Whenever it's possible to do so, we prefer to use existing data. If the data are sitting there in some Excel spreadsheet, why would we not want to use those? So sometimes there are like client information sheets, so registration data or uh, clinical uh, registries where you can go in and actually analyze research questions with what's there. You could do a clinical chart review. Unfortunately, that's not always the case. If you have a new question, often you haven't collected data that, that could answer that question. So in that situation, you need to do primary research where you collect new data from the community or from patients. The steps for research are pretty much the same whether you're doing primary data or secondary data analysis. I consider this to be a five-step process. Both studies figure, uh, start with refining the study question and recruiting collaborators. They both end with analyzing the data and reporting it. These second and third steps are a little bit different. For secondary analysis, once we've got our study question, we get permission to use the data, we extract the data into a spreadsheet, and like a day later, we're analyzing the data and writing it up. So the timeline's a little condensed. For primary analysis, once we have our study question, we have to design the study, get a protocol worked up, talk to people, get that ethics review, and then we have to collect data which could take weeks or months, hopefully not years, but it depends on the project. So timeline's a little bit longer for that, but with primary analysis, we can collect exactly the information we want and not rely on what just happens to be available. 
So let's pause here quickly and take a, a moment to think about, can you answer your question using existing data? Or do you need to collect new data to answer that question that you came up with a few minutes ago? And do you want to consider this to be informal or formal research? So we'll take a moment to think about that. you are thinking primary research? And how many are thinking secondary? So a few secondary projects. How many are thinking formal? And how many are thinking informal? Okay, those of you who are thinking informal, I would like to challenge you to consider whether formal might be the way to conceive of your project. Uh, because one thing to know, if at the end you want to try to publish or share your results, if you haven't gotten that ethics approval at the beginning, sometimes you might not be allowed to publish. So if you think that there's any possibility that you want to share your results outside of your organization, you might want to just change your mindset a little bit. Uh, just because you get, like, ethics approval doesn't mean you are obligated to publish. No one will come hunt you down if you don't. Uh, but to, to keep that option open could be a good thing. So... Next step is we need to refine our study questions. And there are two acronyms that I like to use for my, my study questions. The first acronym is EDP, which stands for Exposure Disease Population. And exposure is pretty big category. So what is the personal characteristic? What is the risk factor, the treatment, the intervention of interest? So many things could fit into that category. The disease or outcome part is what is the disease or outcome of interest. And the population part says what is the population where this exposure and this disease or outcome will be studied. And what we can do is when we have EDPs, it's like a, a Mad Libs thing. You just sort of fill it into a question. So is this exposure a risk factor for this disease in this population? Does this intervention prevent or treat this disease in this population? Now, of course, most studies ask, like, 100 questions about different types of exposures and ask about a bunch of different outcomes. But having clarity about your main question is really important. If you don't have an EDP, you probably don't have a narrow enough question yet that you can do focused research that's going to give you a usable answer. The other acronym that I like is PPT, which stands for Person, Place, Time. And this is about getting down to logistics. 
So what data will allow me to answer my key study question based on those EDPs? For a person, I'm saying, who do I want to collect data from so I can answer the key study question? And we want to get specific. Like, I will collect data from the people who come to the ENT clinic at this building. Uh, very specific. The more specific you can be, the better. Even better if you can say people between the ages of 18 and 49 who are female. If you can be even more specific. Now, you don't want to be so narrow that you end up with eight people. We want a, a decent sample size. But the more specific you can be, the better. The second P is for place. And this is saying, where can I recruit participants or find data? And recruiting might be clinic-based. It might be community-based. And often, community-based is the best way to answer study questions in public health. And the time part is, when do I want to collect data? And one of the, the things to be aware of there is, if you're doing community-based research and you show up to talk to school children and it's summer holiday, your timing is not going to be good. So you actually have to look at a calendar and figure out, like, these are good months or weeks, and this is not a good time. So this is really getting down to logistics. Between the EDPs that set up what is the question I want to answer and the PPTs that set up what are the logistics for how I'm going to get this data, you're in pretty good shape for moving forward on either informal or formal research. Once we know our EDPs, we can then start thinking about our study design. And this is where the non-epidemiologists start to panic a little bit. Uh, and that's okay. Uh, collaboration is good. When in doubt, find people who have done research before and, and bring them onto your team. Briefly, let's look at five of the most common study designs. The first study design here in our table is a cohort study. And a cohort study recruits people who have had or have not had a particular exposure. And we go forward in time to see what outcomes happen. So I put exposure in bold on the screen and on your handouts because this is, of your EDPs, what you're saying is I am recruiting people because of their exposure status. An experimental study is kind of like a cohort study. The key difference here is that instead of just choosing people who were already exposed, like these people live in a clean water community and these people are on the wait list, exposed, not exposed. For an experimental study, I assign the exposure. So I recruit people and I say, you get the exposure, you don't, you do, you don't. You. So that's an experiment. A case series is when we look at a bunch of people who all have the same disease or all underwent the same procedure. So this is pretty common for clinical research. The limitation here is there's no control group. So you're pretty much saying, like, I did this surgical procedure on 80 people and seven of them had a negative outcome that required an extended hospitalization. And here are the characteristics of those people. And so watch out, that could be a risk factor for a bad outcome. So that would be a case series. If we want to do comparative research with cases and not cases, sick people and not sick people, that's called a case control study. So you recruit people who have a disease, people who do not have that disease, and you ask both groups about past exposures that might sort of point to why some people ended up sick and some people were not sick. So if we look at the EDPs, the case control study is recruiting people because of their disease status, where the cohort study was recruiting people because of their exposure status. And the last type that we'll talk about here is a cross-sectional study, and I put a star next to it because that's the most common type. 
I would say like 90% of public health studies are cross-sectional studies. What we do here is we recruit a representative sample of a well-defined population, and we ask about a bunch of exposures and a bunch of diseases. The key thing here, this can go terribly wrong. A lot of times when people do a cross-sectional study, uh, what they do is they say, ah, you're my friend, you're my friend, and I met you at the grocery store. Let me ask you some questions, and we'll see what we find. Uh, what I confess is that if I did a study with my friends, they would not be normal. Uh, and I su suppose that that's true for all of us, right? The people we spend time with are like us. They are not representative of the world at large. And so if I choose a population, like I say, I'm just going to go to the, the soccer game down there and talk to the parents. And I'm going to assume, since I'm here in Louisville, that those soccer parents are representative of all adults in Kentucky. That's probably not a good plan. So just because it's cross-sectional doesn't mean that you should just go choose anybody. You need a sampling strategy to be able to answer your question. Before we talk more about that, just again to summarize these common study designs, we've got at the top of this chart the EDPs. And we can see that if you're choosing people based on exposure status, we'll call that a cohort study. If we're choosing people based on disease status and there's no comparison group, it's a case series. If there is a comparison group, it's a case control study. And if we're choosing people because they're representative of a population, if we're just measuring everything at one point in time, it's a cross-sectional study. If we're looking at multiple points in time, it's either a cohort study or an experimental study, depending on whether I assign the exposure or I just observe what's happening. So when you read those terms in journal articles, that's usually what they mean, although unfortunately a lot of times just because an author says this is what our study design was doesn't mean that's actually the study design that was used. Uh, we, we who teach epidemiology say, like, these are the, these are the study designs, well-defined. In the real world, there's a little bit more blur between study designs because you sort of have a hybrid thing that happens a lot. So going back to that idea of cross-sectional studies, please do not recruit a convenient sample if you want this to be generalizable. So, for example, uh, let's say you are looking for how your clients feel about your services. Your happiest clients are the ones that you're going to select if you do a convenient sample. So you, the disgruntled ones are not getting the survey. You're like, you look like you, you're in a good mood. Fill out this survey. So you'll bias the sample toward positive results. If you just have a strategy where you have, like, the comment cards at the back of the waiting room, it's like, how was your service today? The happy people walk right by it. The disgruntled ones say, this was an awful experience. So you bias your results toward the negative. So if you want an actual representation of the people that you intended to survey, you have to have a strategy like every other patient who comes in, when they go back to the checkup room, you hand them a survey form. So it's, it's systematic. Disgruntled and happy both are equally likely to get the survey. We want either then to use a 100% sample or a random sample. So again, we can ask everybody every 10th person, every 20th person to do a survey, or you just give it to everybody. What we've got to watch out for, though, is a participation rate. If you hand a survey form to everybody and 10% of people hand it back to you, again, biased sample. So you want to see if there's some sort of an incentive that doesn't have to be money. Uh, it can be even a thank you can be an incentive. Having a personal relationship with people can be an incentive. Uh, but you want to have a reasonably representative sample and a reasonably high participation rate if you're doing cross-sectional research. Those are the, the two big things when I review journal articles. 
that sort of mean that some project might not have been quite so successful if they went with a convenient sample or had a really low participation rate. So with all of that in mind, and you've had a few minutes here to be thinking in the back of your head about your, your study question, can you t think for a moment, what is your main study question? Do you have some EDPs and PPTs in mind? And based on all of that, what study design do you think is most appropriate? I'm going to give you like four minutes here at least, because I know that's a lot of questions to answer. which is good. Uh, we've got our EDPs, our PPTs. I heard some cohort study and case control study over here. I couldn't hear that side of the room. I assume, which one? Cohort. What other study designs? Anybody trying experiments? Only a few. Which is good because I think a lot of people think that every study has to be experimental. Like we hear that, you know, the randomized control trial is the gold standard. It's only the gold standard for certain types of causal research. If you're doing population-based research, like what is the prevalence of hypertension? That's not an experiment. We don't need to have an RCT for that. All right, here's where we get down to the actual process then of collecting data. If you're going to do a secondary analysis, you should come up with a data extraction form that looks kind of like a survey that tells you what to pull out of each record. That's the easiest way to do that. If you're doing primary research, you need to design a questionnaire, either for self-report by your participants or for use by interviewers. And that questionnaire needs to ask about your EDPs. So you need questions about exposures or personal characteristics, about diseases and health status, and about population characteristics or demographics at the individual level. When possible, try to use close-ended questions. So things that have like yes-no answers, choose one from this list. Uh, how old are you in years? Where there's a limited number of types of answers people can give you. But also consider when open-ended explanations will help to explain people's close-ended questions. So you can have a balance between those, but the open-ended ones are a little bit harder to analyze typically. If you want to be able to say, this percent said yes, then the closed-ended ones are important. Uh, make sure that you let other people, especially members of the community, look through your survey. Uh, often I've been surprised when I think my question is abundantly clear, and I have people look at it, and they have no clue what in the world I'm trying to get at with that. So uh, you need to have clear questions and also responses that are understandable and match those questions. So, for example, if you ask, uh, I've seen surveys where I'll say, like, what kind of house do you live in? And the question is that the, the researcher is wanting to you know, I own, I rent. And the responses are like, my house has a blue door, which doesn't quite match the intention. So make sure that you get some outside help so that you make sure that your questionnaire is as useful as possible. There are some primary data collection decisions to be made. How are you going to contact and recruit people for participation? It's easy if you're doing like a clinic-based study because they come to you. It's a little bit trickier to do a community-based survey where you go to them. Geographic sampling is really helpful. 
So if you've got access to like a map and you can go down a street and on the map put a check mark on every 10th house or every third house, that could be a way to get a random sample. So you'll have to think for your community what would work best. Second important question is how will you get this data? Will it be a self-report questionnaire or an interview? Uh, if you are doing research on sensitive topics, uh, like how much do you love illegal drugs? Yes, no, scale of one to 10. Uh, probably a self-report survey might get more honest answers if you let people tell you about their, their favorite drugs in that sort of private way. On the other hand, if you're working with a population with low literacy, then doing an interview is pretty much the only way that you're gonna get good data. So again, this is very dependent on the types of questions and on your community. Third thing to think about is how will you record your responses? Do you want to have people put them on paper and later on you'll type them in? Or is there some way that you can have the responses go straight into a computer? So in Sierra Leone, where I've been doing a lot of research over the past five years, we started with paper surveys and we found that photocopying was really expensive and we were doing interviews anyway, uh, so it wasn't a self-report, it was an interview process. Photocopying was expensive, it was really hard to find people to do data entry, so it'd be like six to eight months after the interview when we'd have stuff in the computer. We switched to sending out interviewers with iPads where it's all touchscreen, and as they go through the questionnaire, if there's a skip, like, do you smoke? Yes, no. If no, skip to this next question. It automatically skips, which is nice. Uh, it, we don't have to worry about illegible handwriting. And at the end of the day, we've got our data. Uh, and that's been especially important. We've moved to doing infectious disease surveillance. So for that project, we really do need live time information about what outbreak is happening, where is it happening. But even for our community-based surveys, we're now switching. So when we do rural health surveys, uh, we're sending out people with just uh, smartphones. And we can load the surveys onto the smartphones and just pay people in minutes, talk time, minutes, in exchange for data. And that seems to work pretty well. So think about your needs, your timeline, and your resources for that. When it gets to data analysis, this is where a lot of people who, who are wonderful at data collection, everything up to now has been smooth sailing, and now there's a spreadsheet, and panic sets in. And if that is the case, it is important to remember that most research projects require only very basic statistics. The typical article published in medicine, nursing, public health, has some counts and, or, or frequencies and some proportions or percents, and that's it. So if you can count and you can divide one number by another, that is all you need for most research projects. And if that's all you're comfortable with, that's fine. Now, some basic tests of comparison may be useful. And so most of us have taken a stats course and we know you compare means with a t-test, you compare proportions with a chi-square test. Those are pretty much the only two tests you need to know. So if you're panicking about the idea of doing numbers, not that big a deal. Advanced statistics like regression are rarely necessary. So I love numbers. I can do fancy stats. And I rarely use regression models in my published papers because they don't answer the question. If my question is, what percent of people in this community have diabetes, my answer is a percent. I don't need to do a regression on that. That's not helpful. Some other things to keep in mind. Expect that data entry and data cleaning will take much longer than data collection. This is, again, where people get frustrated. Uh, if you've been doing data entry into an Excel file, 
And you put some, like for male, female, you have some capital M's and some lowercase m's. And you import that into another software system for analysis. It will think that big M and little m are different. And you're going to have to go through and do like the find and replace to get them all to be the same. And so that sort of thing often really does take longer than the initial data entry. So that's normal. So again, a little frustrating, but if you know that that's coming, it's not that intolerable. Simple data analysis can be done in Excel. I generally don't recommend that, but Excel will do counts. Excel will do percents. So if that's all you need to do, Excel or another spreadsheet is fine. If you are looking to do comparative stats and you don't have access to SPSS or R or Stata or SAS or something fancy, EpiInfo is free software from the CDC. And you can upload an Excel spreadsheet and you can analyze it with EpiInfo. And EpiInfo is so nice that it even uses, like it'll say, what is your exposure? What is your outcome? And it, it like fills in the tables. And then, this is the best part, when it gives output for a test, if the test was statistically significant, it highlights it in blue. So you don't even have to think. Uh, and, and if they give you different, like sometimes they'll say there are three different tests you can use for that comparison, like that comparison of means. If there are three different tests, it will put highlights around the one that's best for you to use in that situation. So really nice. One little hint that I would give, the newest version of EpiInfo came out about two years ago. It's EpiInfo 7. It's a Windows-based program. It is very hard to use. The older version is EpiInfo 3 point something something. Uh, that version is also for Windows, and that one is easier to use. So if you haven't used this program before, you might want to start with the EpiInfo 3 point something, uh, just as a, a more simple thing. It's designed for use globally. That's why it's free. Uh, it uses some slightly weird language, like instead of opening a file, you read it, and instead of saving a file, you write the file. Uh, but there, there are some wonderful resources online, and again, very quickly, you just import your Excel file, and you say, what do you want to do? I want to compare means. Do -do -do -do. Okay, the blue. Yes, it's significant. So that's a great resource. If you need to do fancier statistics, call a friend. Uh, statisticians are, are available. Uh, people like me, we love numbers. If you aren't comfortable with the numbers, somebody can collaborate with you. And get that person involved early. Statisticians don't like being called in at the very end. Statisticians like being involved in that questionnaire design so that they'll end up with usable numbers. So get your team together at the very beginning when you're coming up with your study question. Finally, then, we get to the reporting. And most scientific reports follow the IMRAD outline, Intro, Methods, Results, and Discussion. And when I'm writing a paper, I like to think of it as telling a story. Okay, not telling a fictional story. That's not what I mean by story. Telling a truthful story. But there should be a bit of a storyline. So in the intro, you set up what is the study question, why is it important? Now, you don't give the answer away. You want to set up a little mystery. So we don't start by saying, I wanted to answer this question, and here's what I found. That's the abstract. So set up the mystery in the intro. In the method section, say, what steps did you take to answer this question? In the results section, you say, what evidence did I gather? And when in doubt, if you can, use tables and figures. When I read a paper, uh, don't tell my colleagues who think that I've you know, read every word. What I do is I read the abstract, I look at the pictures. 
And then if it's interesting, I read the rest. But people should be able to get your whole story from the abstract and the pictures. When I write a paper, I write the method section first, and then I make all of my tables and figures. And then from that, I fill in the results and then, and then the intro and the discussion. But the images are really important. We tend to be visual people. In the discussion, our first paragraph of the discussion should answer the study question. So last paragraph of the intro says, and my goal was to find out X. First paragraph of the discussion, the answer to that question is Y. Uh, and then we talk about practical implications. So what did I learn? What's the generalizable message for other people? If you want to publish your findings, here are some suggestions. First of all, if you don't have scientific publishing experience, find a mentor and get that person on your team as early as possible. Don't wait till you're, you've already sort of written something and it's not going well to get that person involved. Get them involved early. Second, read, 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 read. The best way to learn how to write in scientific language is to read a lot. I tell my students writing in epidemiological ease has very little to do with writing in English. There is a style of writing that you have to get used to, and by reading, you can come up with that style. Third, focus on your audience. What is the generalizable take-home message you want to share? So start with the message. Start with the story before you do the writing. And keep in mind who your audience is. It's good to come up with a journal ahead of time or a several target journals because writing for a nursing audience, writing for a physician audience, writing for a public health audience, uh, writing for an international development or community development audience, they're all a little bit different. So maybe find your target journal, read a couple of articles, get the sense of how those are structured and how they, they, their style is, and write that way. And most importantly, you have to be persistent. So a lot of times it takes maybe three or four t tries to find a journal that wants to review your article. And you might get reviewer feedback. I'm shocked that more than half of people who are invited to revise their manuscript and resubmit it to a journal just don't. And generally, like more than 90% of the time, if you're invited to revise and resubmit, your paper will be accepted. But more than half of people just quit. That it's just, I, I got negative feedback, I don't want to do this anymore. But if you did this project because you want to learn something important about the world, and if you've got a message that you want to share with the world and you think would be helpful, then you need to have that persistence to see this through to completion. So it's okay if it takes several attempts to find a home. That's part of the process. So we've got a few minutes here to think about what, who do you need to have on your research team so that you can successfully answer your study question and, by extension, have new information for improving health in the community you serve. So we are getting close to the end, but let's take two minutes to think about who are people you would want to recruit to participate in the study that you've been designing this morning. And always recruit local people. Never do a study in isolation. You need a local team, not just researchers. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> All right. Um, do we have any questions or any ideas or words of wisdom that we want to share with the group? I'm 
I've worked in pretty much every continent, I don't recruit locally. My local partners recruit locally. So when I'm doing international research, I don't show up and say, this is my project I'm going to do here. Um, I get invited in by people who say, this is the question my community has. And so it's community-based participatory research. The community sets the agenda. I'm there as a resource. Uh, and often the way it works is uh, a community members, uh, healthcare professionals or community members will say, this is our question. I come in, I can help with the study design. They collect the data. It's their community, their experts. Uh, and then I help with the analysis and writing. So I'm there more as a resource person, but it's community-driven. Other questions, comments?